Welcome everyone to episode 79 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and in today's episode, we're talking about one of the most notorious serial killers out there, H.H. Holmes. So let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Herman Webster Mudgett, better known as Dr. Henry Howard Holmes, or H.H. Holmes, was an American con artist and serial killer. He was the subject of more than 50 lawsuits in Chicago alone. Until his execution in 1896, he had chosen a career of crime, including insurance fraud, swindling, check forging, three or four bigamous marriages, horse theft, and murder. Despite his confession of 27 murders, including some people who were verifiably still alive while awaiting execution, Holmes was convicted and sentenced to death for only one murder, that of accomplice and business partner Benjamin Peitzel. It is believed that he killed three of the Peitzel children as well as three mistresses, the child of one of his mistresses and the sister of another. Holmes was executed on May 7, 1896. Much of the lore surrounding the murder castle, along with many of his alleged crimes, are considered likely exaggerated or fabricated for sensationalistic tabloid pieces. Many of these factual inaccuracies have persisted due to the combination of ineffective police investigation and hyperbolic tabloid journalism which are often cited as historical record. Holmes gave various contradictory accounts of his life, initially claiming innocence and later that he was possessed by Satan. His propensity for lying has made it difficult for researchers to ascertain the truth on the basis of his statements. Since the 1900s, Holmes has often been described as a serial killer. In his book about Holmes, Adam Selzer writes, Just killing several people isn't necessarily enough for most definitions of a serial killer. More often, it has to be a series of similar crimes committed over a period of time, usually more to satisfy a psychological urge on the killer's part than more practical motive. He added, The murders we can connect him to generally had a clear motive. Someone knew too much or was getting in his way and couldn't be trusted. The murders weren't simply for love of bloodshed, but a necessary part of furthering his swindling operations and protecting his lifestyle. Holmes was born as Herman Webster Mudgett in 
Gilmanton, New Hampshire, on May 16, 1861, to Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodet Page Price, both of whom were descended from the first English settlers in the area. Mudgett was his parents' third-born child. He had an older sister, Ellen, an older brother, Arthur, and a younger sister, Mary, and a younger brother, Henry. Holmes's father was from a farming family, and at times he worked as a farmer, trader, and house painter. His parents were devout Methodists. Later attempts to fit Holmes into the patterns seen in modern serial killers have described him torturing animals and suffering from abuse at the hands of a violent father, but contemporary and eyewitness accounts of his childhood do not provide proof of either. On July 4, 1878, he married Clara Lovering in Alton. Their son, Robert Lovering Mudgett, was born on February 3, 1880 in Ludon, New Hampshire, and Robert became a certified public accountant and served as the city manager of Orlando, Florida. Holmes enrolled in the University of Vermont in Burlington at the age of 18, but was dissatisfied with the school, and he left one year in. In 1882, he entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery and graduated in June 1884 after passing his exams. While enrolled, he worked in the anatomy lab under Professor William James Herdman, then the chief anatomy instructor, and the two were said to have been engaged in facilitating grave robbing to supply medical cadavers. Holmes had apprenticed in New Hampshire under Nom. I'm going to mess that up. Nahum, N-A-H-U-M, White, a noted advocate of human dissection. Years later, when Holmes was suspected of murder and claiming to be nothing but an insurance fraudster, he admitted to using cadavers to defraud life insurance companies several times in college. Housemates described Holmes as treating Clara violently, and in 1884, before his graduation, she moved back to New Hampshire, and later wrote that she knew little of him afterwards. After he moved to Moore's Forks, New York, a rumor spread that Holmes had been seen with a little boy who later disappeared. Holmes claimed the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts. No investigation took place, and Holmes quickly left town. He later traveled to Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and he got a job as a keeper in Norristown State Hospital, but quit after a few days. He later took a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia, but while he was working there, a boy died after taking medicine that was purchased at the store. Holmes denied any involvement in the child's death and immediately left the city. Right before moving to Chicago, he changed, the name to, changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes, to avoid the possibility of being exposed by his victims of previous scams. In his confession after his arrest, Holmes claimed that he had killed his former medical school classmate Robert Leacock in 1886 for insurance money. Leacock, however, died in Watford, Ontario in Canada on October 5, 1889. In late 1886, while still married to Clara, Holmes married Marta Belknap in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He filed for divorce from Clara a few weeks after marrying Marta, alleging infidel infidelity on her part. 
The claims could not be proven, and the suit went nowhere. Surviving paperwork indicated that she probably was never even informed of the suit. In any case, the divorce was never finalized. It was dismissed June 4, 1891 on the grounds of want of prosecution. Holmes had a daughter with Marta, Lucy Theodette Holmes, who was born on July 4, 1889 in Inglewood, Chicago. Lucy became a public school teacher. Holmes lived with Marta and Lucy in Wilmette, Illinois, and spent most of his time in Chicago, tending to business. Holmes then married Georgina Yoke on January 17, 1894, in Denver, Colorado, while still married to both Clara and Marta. Holmes arrived in Chicago in August of 1886, which is when he began using the name H.H. Holmes. He came across Elizabeth S. Holton's drugstore at the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue in Inglewood. Holton gave Holmes a job, and he proved to be a hard-working employee, eventually buying the store. Although several books portray Holton's husband as an old man who quickly vanished along with his wife, Dr. Holton was a fellow Michigan alumnus only a few years older than Holmes, and both Holton, Holton's remained in Inglewood throughout Holmes's life and survived well into the 20th century. It is a myth that they were killed by Holmes. Likewise, Holmes did not kill alleged castle victim Miss Kate Durkee, who was also out to be very much turned out to be very much alive. Holmes purchased an empty lot across from the drugstore, where construction began in 1887 for a two-story mixed-use building, with apartments on the second floor and retail spaces, including a new drugstore. A creditor of Holmes named John Debriel died of apoplexy on April 17, 1891 in the drugstore. When Holmes declined to pay the architects or the steel company, Etna Iron and Steel, they sued in 1888. In 1892, he added a third floor, telling investors and suppliers that he intended to use it as a hotel during the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition, through the hotel portion was never completed. In 1892, the hotel was somewhat completed, with three stories and a basement. The ground floor was the storefront. Fictionalized accounts report that Holmes constructed the hotel to lure in tourists visiting the nearby World's Fair in order to murder them and sell their skeletons to medical schools. There is no evidence that Holmes ever tried to lure strangers into his hotel to murder them. In fact, none of his likely victims were strangers. Holmes did have a history of selling cadavers to medical schools, however. He acquired his wares through grave robbing rather than murder. Reports by the Yellow Press labeled the building as Holmes's murder castle, claiming the structure contained secret torture chambers, trap doors, gas chambers, and a basement crematorium. None of these claims were true. Other accounts claim that the hotel was made up of over a hundred rooms that laid out like a maze, with doors opening into brick walls, windowless rooms, and dead-end staircases. In reality, the hotel floor was moderately sized and largely unremarkable. It did contain some hidden rooms, but they were used for hiding furniture Holmes had bought on credit and did not intend to pay for. The hotel was gutted by a fire started by an unknown arsonist shortly after Holmes was arrested. 
but was largely rebuilt and used as a post office until 1938. Besides his infamous murder castle, Holmes also had a one-story factory, which he claimed was used for glass bending. It is unclear if the factory furnace was ever used for glass bending. It was speculated to have been used to destroy incriminating evidence of Holmes's crimes. One of the Holmes's early victims was his mistress, Julia Smythe. She was the wife of uh, Ned Connor, who had moved into Holmes's building and began working at his pharmacy's jewelry counter. After Connor found out about Smythe's affair with Holmes, he quit his job and moved away, leaving Smythe and her daughter Pearl behind. Smythe gained custody of Pearl and remained at the hotel, continuing her relationship with Holmes. Julia and Pearl disappeared on Christmas Eve of 1891, and Holmes later claimed that she had died of an abortion. Despite his medical background, Holmes was unlikely to be experienced in carrying out abortions, and mortality from such a procedure was high at that time. Holmes claimed to have poisoned Pearl, likely to hide the circumstances of her mother's death. A partial skeleton, possibly of a child around Pearl's age, was found when excavating Holmes's cellar. Pearl's father, Ned, was a key witness at Holmes's trial in Chicago. Emmeline Sigrand began working on the building in May of 1892 and disappeared that December. Rumors following her disappearance claimed that she had gotten pregnant by Holmes possibly being a victim of another failed abortion that Holmes tried to cover up. Another young girl who had worked for Holmes in his building, named Emily Van Tassel, vanished too. While working in the Chemical Bank building on Dearborn Street, Holmes met and became close friends with Benjamin Peitzel, a carpenter with a criminal past who was exhibiting in the same building a coal bin he had invented. Holmes used Peitzel as his right-hand man for several criminal schemes. A district attorney later described Peitzel as Holmes's tool, his creature. In early 1893, a one-time actress named Minnie Williams moved to Chicago. Holmes claimed to have met her in an employment office, though there were rumors that he had met her in Boston years earlier. He offered her a job at the hotel and his personal stenographer, and she accepted. Holmes persuaded Williams to transfer the deed to her property in Fort Worth, Texas, to a man named Alexander Bond, an alias of Holmes. In April 1893, Williams transferred the deed, with Holmes serving as the notary. He later signed the deed over to Peitzel, giving him the alias Benton T. Lyman. The next month, Holmes and Williams, presenting themselves as husband and wife, rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Minnie's sister, Annie, came to visit, and in July, she wrote to her aunt that she planned to accompany Brother Harry to Europe. Neither Minnie nor Annie were seen alive after July 5, 1893. Although not proven, Holmes was suspected of killing six other people who vanished between 1891 and 1895. Dr. Rustler, who had an office in the castle, went missing in 1892. Kitty Kelly, a stenographer for Holmes, also went missing in 1892. John G. Davis of Greenville, Pennsylvania, went to visit the 1893 World's Fair and vanished. 
1920, his daughter asked that he be declared legally dead. Henry Walker of Greensburg, Indiana, who went missing in November 1893, was alleged to have insured his life to Holmes for $20,000 and wrote to friends that he was working for Holmes in Chicago. Milford Cole of Baltimore, Maryland, was alleged to have disappeared after receiving a telegram from Holmes to come to Chicago in July of 1894. An otherwise unknown victim was Lucy Burbank. Her bank book was found in the castle in 1895. With insurance companies pressing to prosecute him for arson, Holmes left Chicago in July 1894. He reappeared in Fort Worth where he had inherited property from the Williams sisters at the intersection of modern-day Commerce Street and 2nd Street. Here, he once again attempted to build an incomplete structure without paying his suppliers and contractors. This building was not a site of any additional killings. In July 1894, Holmes was arrested and briefly jailed for the first time on the charge of selling mortgaged goods in St. Louis, Missouri. He was promptly bailed out, but while in jail, he struck up a conversation with a convicted outlaw named Marion Hedgepeth, who was serving a 25-year sentence. Holmes had concocted a plan to swindle an insurance company out of $10,000 by taking out a policy on himself and then faking his death. Holmes promised Hedgepeth a $500 commission in exchange for the name of a lawyer who could be trusted. Holmes was directed to a young St. Louis attorney named Jephthah Howe. Howe thought Holmes's scheme was brilliant and agreed to play a part. Nevertheless, Holmes's plan to fake his own death failed when the insurance company became suspicious and refused to pay. Holmes did not press the claim. Instead, he concocted a similar plan with Peitzel. Peitzel agreed to fake his own death so that his wife could, could collect a, a $10,000 life insurance policy which she was to split with Holmes and Howe. The scheme, which was to take place in Philadelphia, called for Peitzel to set himself up as an inventor under the name B.F. Perry, and then be killed and disfigured in a lab explosion. Holmes was to find an appropriate cadaver to play the role of Peitzel. Instead, Holmes killed Peitzel by knocking him un unconscious with chloroform and setting his body on fire with the use of benzene. In his confession, Holmes implied Peitzel was still alive after he used the chloroform on him, before he set him on fire. However, forensic evidence presented at Holmes' later trial showed that chloroform had been administered after Peitzel's death, a fact of which the insurance company was unaware, presumably to fake suicide to exonerate Holmes should he be charged with murder. Holmes collected the insurance payout on the basis of the genuine Peitzel corpse. Holmes then went on to manipulate Peitzel's unsuspecting wife into allowing three of her five children, Alice, Nellie, and Howard, to be placed in his custody. The eldest daughter and the baby remained with Mrs. Peitzel. Holmes and the three Peitzel children traveled throughout the northern United States and into Canada. Simultaneously, he escorted Mrs. Peitzel along a parallel route, all the while using various aliases and lying to Mrs. Peitzel concerning her husband's death, claiming that he was hiding in London, as well as lying to her about the true whereabouts of her three missing children. In Detroit, 
just before entering Canada, they were only separated by a few blocks. In an even more audacious move, Holmes was staying at another location with his wife, who was unaware of the whole affair. Holmes later confessed to murdering Alice and Nellie by forcing them into a large trunk and locking them inside. He drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk and put one end of a hose through the hole, attaching the other end to a gas line to asphyxiate the girls. Holmes buried their, bo their nude bodies in the cellar of his rental house at 16 Street Vincent, Vincent Street in Toronto. This home and address no longer exists, St. Vincent Street having long since been realigned into a part of Bay Street. Frank Gare, a Philadelphia police detective assigned to investigate Holmes and find the three missing children, found the decomposed bodies of the two Peitzel girls in the cellar of the Toronto home. Detective Geyer wrote, The deeper we dug, the more horrible the odor became, and when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. Geyer then went to Indianapolis, where Holmes had rented a cottage. Holmes was reported to have visited a local pharmacy to purchase the drugs which he used to kill young Howard Peitzel and a repair shop to sharpen the knives he used to chop the body before he burned it. The boy's teeth and bits of bone were discovered in the Holmes chimney. Holmes's murder spree finally entered when he was arrested in Boston on November 17, 1894, after being tracked there from Philadelphia by the private Pinkerton National Detective Agency. He was held on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas because the authorities had become more suspicious at this point and Holmes appeared poised to flee the country in the company of his unsuspecting third wife. In July 1895, following the discovery of Alice and Nellie's bodies, the Chicago police and reporters began investigating Holmes's building in Inglewood, now locally referred to as the Castle. Though many sensational claims were made, no evidence was found which could have convicted Holmes in Chicago. According to Selzer, stories of torture equipment found in the building are 20th century fiction. In October of 1895, Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel and was found guilty and sentenced to death. By then, it was evident Holmes had also murdered the three missing Peitzel children. Following his conviction, Holmes confessed to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, though some that he confessed to murdering were still alive, and six attempted murders. Holmes was paid $7,500 by the Hearst newspapers in exchange for his confession, which was quickly found to be mostly nonsense. While writing his confessions in prison, Holmes mentioned how drastically his facial appearance had changed since his imprisonment. On May 7, 1896, Holmes was hanged at, I mean, I'm going to butcher this, Moya Mincing Prison, also known as the Philadelphia County Prison, for the murder of Peitzel. Until the moment of death, Holmes remained calm and amiable, showing very few signs of fear, anxiety, or depression. Despite this, he asked for his coffin to be contained in cement and buried ten feet deep because he was concerned grave robbers would steal his body and use it for dissection. Holmes's neck did not break. He instead strangled to death slowly, twitching for over 15 minutes before being pronounced dead 
20 minutes after the trap had been sprung. Upon his execution, Holmes's body was interred in an unmarked grave at Holy Cross Cemetery, a Catholic cemetery in the Philadelphia western suburb of Yeadon, Pennsylvania. On New Year's Eve 1909, Hedgepeth, who had been pardoned for informing on Holmes, was shot and killed by police officer Edward Jabarek during a holdup at the Chicago Saloon. On March 7, 1914, the Chicago Tribune reported that with the death of Patrick Quaylen, the former caretaker of the castle, the mysteries of Holmes's castle would remain unexplained. Quaylen had committed suicide by taking strychnine. His body was found in his bedroom with a note that read, I couldn't sleep. Quaylen's surviving relatives claimed to have been haunted for several months and was suffering from hallucinations. The castle itself was mysteriously gutted by fire in August of 1895. According to a newspaper clipping from the New York Times, two men were seen entering the back of the building between 8 and 9 p.m. About half an hour later, they were seen exiting the building and rapidly running away. Following several explosions, the castle went up in flames. Afterwards, investigators found a half-empty gas can underneath the back steps of the building. The building survived the fire and remained in use until it was torn down in 1938. The site is occupied by the Inglewood branch of the United States Postal Service. Holmes is, in 2017, amid allegations Holmes had in fact escaped execution, Holmes's body was exhumed for testing led by Janet Mong of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Due to his coffin being contained in cement, his body was found not to have decomposed normally. His clothes were almost perfectly preserved and his mustache was found to be intact. The body was positively identified by his teeth as being that of Holmes. Holmes was then reburied. Our next story comes from YourGhostStories.com and it's called The Old Civil War Hospital and the Old Indian Burial Ground. When I was 14, I had a friend who experienced a lot of supernatural experiences. She used to tell me that she experienced them both in her dad's house and her mom's house and once before she moved to the houses she previously lived in. When she was three, she used to see her dead grandfather near the swing set in her backyard. When her mom asked her what she was doing, she replied, I was playing with Grandpa. Her mom was a bit worried and told her to come inside. Nothing happened for a while after that, until she moved into her mom's house, which was an old Civil War hospital. The old Civil War hospital had a lot of strange happenings. One time, she told me that she saw some of her dead cats and sometimes dead people. When I asked about the strange happenings, my friend replied that she had one more story for me. She told me that every night, something would bang the middle of her door at midnight, and then it would go away. She never investigated this until I wanted to help. I was a bit scared to spend the night with her, but I said that I would go and see her room in the day. When we were there, I felt like 
there was something in the house. I had never seen a ghost or felt a presence before, but now I was sure that something was in her house. I decided to help my friend by figuring out how to stop this knocking on her door. I told her to try to talk to the knocking and say, Hey, is there anyone there? After she did that, the knocking stopped and the, and the appearances began. Every once in a while, a ghost of a girl, about age seven, would show up at my friend's house. Of course, I, was, I still have never seen a ghost because I was too scared to spend the night at her house when these appearances showed up, but I do believe my friend because her brother saw them too. He was not a fibber. He would not lie. So this little girl would go around the staircase in her mother's house at night when my friend was doing homework. When the ghost showed up, we decided that she needed a name. My friend told me to think of a name, so I did. I came up with the name Cecilia because the ghost was silly and the cilia was a little lame. So I told my friend the name and one night she asked the ghost who started to knock again if her name was Cecilia and the ghost said no that's my mom's name my name is Annie after that my friend continued to talk to her about stuff much of it I don't remember the one thing they talked about was becoming friends my friend asked Annie if she wanted to be her friend and Annie said yes after about three weeks or so the little ghost Annie told my friend that she had to go and thanked her for being her friend this was a bit creepy because during that time at my house, which was a few houses down, I was always feeling a presence in my basement at night. I don't know exactly what happened at my house, but all I know is that I knew something was there and it went away when the ghost in my friend's house left. Maybe it was Annie, I don't know. My friend experienced supernatural events after the ghost left at her mom's house. She also experienced a lot of different Indian appearances at her dad's house near the West Virginia border. Once she was pushed into the water when she went to the creek near her dad's house. The creepy part is that she was alone. After being pushed, she saw an Indian male across the creek and she ran. She saw at least three other Indian ghosts near her dad's house. I wonder if that had anything to do with her being 16% Indian. I don't have a clue. My friend had many stories that she shared with me when we lived near each other. She experienced white blobs and lots of ghosts. It was fun to hear about the ghost Annie that I helped. She probably needed a friend before she could go home. Our final story also comes from YourGhostStories.com and it's called My Old Apartment Building. Let me start off by saying that I've lived in what can be considered haunted houses on and off my whole life. I'm currently 31, including both of the apartments I moved into upon leaving my parents' home. I've seen a few things that I can't 100% explain, felt things, and even know things that I probably shouldn't. This story is about my old apartment, Pinewell Commons. I moved in mid-year in 1997. It's a three-story brick, old building, built in the 1920s. The units are seriously small, less than 300 square feet. But considering I was 21 and poor, it was priced right. In the middle of the building was an elevator. The very first day I saw it, I didn't like it. 
Didn't know why. Didn't really care. It just gave me the willies. My apartment was on the second floor, on the back side. For the first year or so, I didn't spend much time in my apartment due to work and family issues, so if anything happened, I never noticed it. It wasn't until year three that I started to notice things. The first was a male figure, dressed in an old seacoat, smoking a pipe, who would walk down the main staircase at odd hours. I thought that he was a new tenant and basically ignored him, until one day, while carrying up my laundry from the basement, I met him in the hallway. He was standing at the landing of my floor, staring up at me, pipe in his mouth. I opened my mouth to say, excuse me, and he disappeared. Yeah, I double-taked, but I shrugged it off and logged it away. I would see him every once in a while, but always at odd hours. Nothing else happened for a while, until I spotted a new figure. This time, a woman. Almost a year later, she was slowly walking down the hallway... But that wasn't the alarming bit. She was dressed in late 19th, 20th century clothing, complete with bustle and a feather fan. She turned toward me. I remember seeing her bright green eyes over the fan. She nodded at me and then disappeared. Again, I logged it, but I didn't let it worry me and I continued on my way. About this time I gained a boyfriend, who for lack of better wording was dabbling in the arts. He was also slightly mentally unwell. Well, unfortunately for me, he did something, brought something, whatever, into view that I wasn't overly excited with. It started with a figure walking back and forth in front of my front door. When I would look out the peephole, no one was there. A few weeks of this, then it changed. Now, when the footsteps started, you could see shadows underneath the door but still nothing visible in the hallway. Then one day, I heard the footsteps again, and this time they stopped directly in front of the door. I could see the shadow of the feet. I got up to check, and this complete and utter terror took over me. I knew that if I got close to the door, something very bad was going to happen. I sat back down on my sofa for four hours waiting, until I looked over and I noticed that the shadow was gone. Shortly after, I broke up with that man. Although I would hear the footsteps once in a while after, I never got that gut-riching feeling of terror again. Then, for almost another year, nothing major happened. I continued to see both the old man and the painted lady, and I started to call them, and I gained a new boyfriend. This time, things worked out great, but new things started to occur in the apartment. First was the elevator. It was flooded during a hurricane and stopped working. I always got a strange sense of fear from it, but now I was almost dreading walking by the doors. Late at night, you could hear the car shifting in the shaft, and that's what I hoped it was, and I swear it sounded angry. Yes, angry, and it wasn't just me who felt like that. Both my boyfriend and several friends also told me the same thing. Another new disturbance was a shower ghost. I used to enjoy long soaks in the shower after work. They relaxed and refreshed me, but around year five, strange things started happening. After spending a few in the shower, the curtain would attack me. At first, I thought it was the steam buildup. I would put bottles on the edge and leave the door open. It would still do it, 
even if I was taking a cold shower. I kind of blew it off until one day I fell asleep in the shower. I started having this dream where this man was trying to wake me up. He was afraid that I was going to drown. He kept hitting me over and over. Finally, I snapped awake when the curtains blew in and knocked off all six bottles. Afterwards, I got the impression that somebody wanted me out of the shower, fearing that I was going to drown. This continued to the day that we left the apartment. Notice, it never did happen to my boyfriend, who often took scalding hot showers. A few more noteworthy occurrences happened if you fell into the world of ghosts. Others I'm still not sure of. Names being called, things touching me, small items moved, the cat often acting freaked out. The biggest thing that I recall was what I call the baby scream. One afternoon I was sleeping on my stomach, my face toward the headboard. I was out cold when a scream woke me up. Upon opening my eyes, directly in front of me should have been the headboard, but I saw a baby's face. Its mouth was opened in a scream and its eyes were squeezed shut. I recoiled in shock as it faded away instantly. I'm not sure what it was, but it has never repeated itself, there or anywhere else. The last major thing to start happening the last year or so we were at the apartment was the solid white forms. What would appear to be the opposite of a shadow, a white outline in the form of a human male, would walk by the doorways in the apartment, always out of the corner of your eyes or from beside you, never looking straight on. Also, this would occur in any doorway in the apartment. There were six doors in a one-room apartment, including the closet. Many people saw these, my boyfriend, several friends, my youngest sister, and myself. They were never threatening, just alarming. After eight long years, we finally moved. Not far, just two miles down the road. The new landlords renovated the building and released it out. I've never been back to check if anything still happens, but often wondered. But I've got this new place to worry about now. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories. And if you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really does help others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. Thank you in advance for subscribing on YouTube and helping me to reach my goal of 500 subscribers. We're still moving along slow, but I'm seeing more and more every day. If you do enjoy the show, please consider helping to support the show by joining on Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. And if you're listening on the day that this episode comes out, there will be a new bonus episode this weekend. Once again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved. <laughs>